Welcome to College Street Victory Church. You're listening to the weekly podcast with Pastor Matt Funk. I don't know about you, but I absolutely love stories about heroes. Ever since I was a little boy reading comic books or watching TV, there's just something about heroes that touches people of all ages, all cultures through all ages. There's something that just calls to the human heart, draws a greatness out of us that you know we, we sometimes just dare to believe. Well, I remember watching Hollywood blockbusters as a kid, and I remember watching Star Wars and seeing Luke Skywalker and Indiana Jones and all these big Hollywood blockbusters. But one of my favorite movies was a movie called 300. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen 300. That was the, this is Sparta, that movie. Uh, uh, But that was one of these epic Hollywood blockbusters. But unlike most other ones, it's actually based on a true story. And in fact, the most epic lines in the movie weren't invented by Hollywood, but were actual historical lines. Now, not everything in that movie was accurate. Like, I don't know if you remember that, but uh, if you imagine Greek soldiers, they actually wore armor. If you look at the movie 300, you have a bunch of guys running around in Speedos. Okay, that's not exactly accurate. That doesn't actually work very well when you're, when you're fighting. Well, the, the villain that, in that movie was a guy named Xerxes. Now, Xerxes was actually a real historical figure. He was the king of Persia. And he was the most powerful man who had ever walked on the face of the earth at that time. He was absolutely mighty. He had the biggest empire the world had ever seen, the mightiest army the world had ever seen. But there's some key differences between the real Xerxes and Hollywood Xerxes. See, Hollywood Xerxes, you see a man um, who's bald. Nothing wrong with that. Uh, (laughs) But the real Xerxes had a full head of hair and a beard. Hollywood Xerxes walks around with chains and wearing a loincloth. Real Xerxes, that guy actually wore clothes. Hollywood Xerxes, that actor is seven feet tall. Do you know how tall the real historical Xerxes was? Seven feet tall. Oddly enough, that is the only thing they got right. (laughs) Well, Xerxes ruled an empire that stretched all the way from India down to Ethiopia, up to Africa and into Europe. All the great empires of the past, the Egyptian Empire, the Babylonian Empire, the Assyrian Empire, were now to be found underneath Persian boots. His army, known as the Persian Immortals, were so numerous that according to the Greek historian Herodotus, when they would unleash a flight of arrows, they were so numerous they would darken the sun. No one who had ever walked on the earth had as much power as this man had. When he said, come, you came. When he said, jump, you said, how high? And in fact, if you ever came into his presence and he hadn't specifically called for you, it was an automatic death sentence. Well, Xerxes goes down in history as not only the man 
who had the most power that the world had ever seen, but he's also the man who threw the greatest party the world ever seen. See, his political power was only matched by his carnal lusts. And this party, he invited people from three continents, 127 provinces, from India to Ethiopia, up into Europe, to come to this massive, massive party. Now this party is actually, in the sequel to the movie 300, is actually shown. And surprisingly, Hollywood gets this right. The, that's what it would have looked like. The ha- palace was built up on the side of a mountain, and that's what the courtyard looked like. The only thing that isn't accurate are those horsey things. They, they didn't have, Hollywood made up those. They didn't have horsies. Um, but everything else, that's what it would have looked like. The courtyard is a massive courtyard, uh, the size of a football field. Not an American football field, but a 60% larger Canadian football field. It was paved with a, the, this tile of mosaic stones. And not like broken pottery mosaics that you would get in Roman works, but no, precious stones. So you had all these people from all over the world, the richest, the most powerful people coming to this massive party of unlimited wine, women, and song. Now, I don't know exactly when it started, but I assume it started, like, I don't know, maybe it started at six. And it went to seven, and it went to eight, and it went to nine, went to 10, went to 11, went to 12, went all the way to midnight. Now, at my age, a party that goes to midnight is kind of a big deal. But this is the greatest party in recorded history. It went to one in the morning, went to two in the morning, went to three in the morning. Now, when I was a university student, a party that went to three in the morning was kind of a big deal. But this is the greatest party we'd ever seen. It went to four, to five, to six in the morning, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, noon. People who've passed out the night before are waking back up and rejoining the party. It goes to one in the afternoon, two, to three, to four, to five, to six. 24-hour non-stop partying. And it went into the next night, the next evening, the next morning, 48 hours, total non-stop weekend. Now, that's a big deal for Hollywood. But this is the greatest party in recorded history. It went for three days, four days, five days, six days, seven days, literally a 24-7 non-stop party. Now, that would have been a big deal for the Roman Caesars, but this is the greatest party in recorded history. It went for two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, five, six, seven, eight weeks. That's two months, three months, four months, five months. The greatest party in recorded history went nonstop for six months. And at the end of that party, according to the Bible, Xerxes was drunk. Didn't see that coming. And so Xerxes there, he's there, there all drunk with his buddies in there. And he starts talking about how hot his wife is. That Queen Vashti, like, she's so hot, she's so awesome. Like, you've got to take, get a load of her. And he gets this idea that he's going to get Queen Vashti to come out and do, like, a little fashion show and, you know, show off in front of his drunken buddies so they could gaze upon her beauty. But as it turns out, Queen Vashti wasn't drunk. Now, I want you to put yourself in her shoes for a second. This woman is the queen of the Persian Empire, the greatest empire the world had ever seen. She's not some kind of a cheap tart to be paraded about in front of drunken fools. So she says no. 
And for the first time in Xerxes' life, somebody said no to him. And he didn't know what to do. He was like, what, what, oh, what do I do with this woman? And his wise men said, King, this is a bigger deal than you realize. King, you are the most powerful man who's ever walked on the face of the earth. If your wife is allowed to disobey you, how is my wife going to treat me? How are all the women in the civilized world going to start treating their husbands? They'll be voting next. They'll be wanting to get driver's license. They'll want to hold the remote control for the TV. Sir, this could be the end of civilization. We have to put a stop to this. King, what you need to do is banish your wife to the outer edge of the empire. And so that's what the king does. He banishes Queen Vashti to the other edge of the empire. Well, a few days goes by, and uh, King Xerxes will feel a little lonely. Maybe in the mood for a little bit of loving. But King Xerxes doesn't have a wife. And all of a sudden, these wise men aren't seeming so wise. And he brings them back in, and he explains to them calmly, King Xerxes is unhappy. And when King Xerxes is unhappy, King Xerxes gets upset. And when King Xerxes gets upset, people die. And they say, King, 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 we've got an idea. See, we've been talking to the guys down at the PBC, you know, the Persian Broadcasting Corporation. Um, and they've had this idea for a new show called The Bachelor. What we're going to do is we're going to send scouts out across the empire, 127 provinces on three different continents, to find the most beautiful women in the empire. We're going to give them a year's worth of beauty treatments, training in the erotic arts and everything, and you're going to get a chance to sample a different woman each night until you find a replacement queen. Well, Xerxes is thinking, it's good to be the king. Go ahead and do that. So the scouts go out across the empire. Now, at the other end of the empire, there's a young girl named Hadassah. And she is nothing at all like Xerxes. Where he has all this power and all this control, she has absolutely none. One, she's a woman in a country that doesn't respect women. She's a teenager in a culture that doesn't respect teenagers. She's an orphan in a city that doesn't care for orphans. And she's a Jew in a world where nobody likes Jews. Ordinarily, somebody in, in her situation uh, might have been enslaved or taken advantage of, but she had a cousin about her age named Mordecai. And Mordecai had vowed before the living God that I am going to take care of my cousin Hadassah. But when the king's scouts came to town and started bringing out all the women, Mordecai was powerless to stop this. And the only thing he said, he said, Hadassah, Whatever you do, don't let them know that you're a Jew. And so she was brought out in front of the scouts, and the scouts went, you know, looking through them. Yeah, yes, yes, no, no. Hey, honey, maybe you need to shave. Yes, no. And then got to Hadassah and said, oh, you will do just fine. What is your name? And she lied to them and instead gave them a Persian name. And she said, my name is Esther. Well, they took Esther and took her back to the capital city, and Mordecai couldn't stop them. 
But he had made this vow. He's going to do whatever he can to protect his cousin. And so he followed them all the way to, to the city. And he didn't have access to the harem, but like he didn't know what he could do. Well, after the beauty treatments and all the dance training and everything else, Esther got her night with the king. Now, the Bible can be very explicit in some places, but it isn't explicit here. So we don't know what happened with her and the king. Maybe they played checkers. Um, but whatever happened, that woman rocked that man's world. And in the morning, he says, this is my new queen. Now, that ended up being really, really good. Because Esther, now Queen Esther, was able to get Mordecai a job there at the palace. Now, Mordecai now is a minor official. That ended up being good because there was actually an assassination plot against Xerxes. See, there was a couple of guys named Big Thana and Teresh. And you got to know, with names like Big Thana and Teresh, these guys are thugs. Um, but they planned to assassinate Xerxes. Mordecai found out about it. The plot was exposed. The bad guys were hanged. The king's life was saved. Well, after this, the king kind of gets tired of running the empire. And he decides, I'm just going to dedicate my whole life to wine, women, and song. And he appoints a man named Haman to run the empire. Now, Haman, Xerxes is the most powerful man on the face of the planet, but Haman is now the most influential. He's the one who's actually making the decisions to run the empire. And Haman was so powerful, when he would walk through the palace courtyard, all the other officials would bow down before him. It's almost like the reverse of a wave that you get at a stadium where everybody just kind of bows down before him. Except for one guy, Mordecai. See, Mordecai was a Jew, and Jews only bow before God. They bow down before no man. Well, initially, this was beneath Haman's notice. But day after day, everybody bowing down, but that one guy, like a pebble in his shoe or a splinter in his finger, he became angrier and angrier and angrier. And finally, he turns to his servant and says, who is that insolent fool who dares not to bow before me? Well, his servant says, oh, that's Mordecai. He's a Jew. They bow before no man. They only bow before their God. Well, when Haman found out that Mordecai was a Jew, he lost it. You see, Haman wasn't a Persian. Haman was an Amalekite. And the Amalekites had had a blood feud with the Jews for a thousand years. And when he found out that Mordecai was a Jew, he says, I'm going to kill that man. I'm going to kill everybody who looks like that man. I'm going to kill everybody on his block. I'm going to kill every single Jew on the face of the earth. Life gives me lemons. I ain't making lemonade. I'm, I'm going to make life take the lemons back. And I'm going to burn their house down with the lemons. Oh, he was so furious. And so he goes to the king to get permission to exterminate the Jewish race. And he gets to the threshold of the king's chamber, just filled with anger. But all of a sudden, his face changes from anger to care and concern. He says, oh, king, I found out something shocking. There's a people out there. They're infiltrators. They're not like other people. They're here to subvert us, 
to corrupt us and they refuse to bow down before before you. I am so offended on your behalf. I've decided to dedicate $150 million to help solve this problem. Now the Bible doesn't say $150 million. It says 10,000 talents of silver, which converted into metric is 340 metric tons of silver. At $14 an ounce, ounces into pounds, pounds into kilograms, kilograms into tons, converted into Canadian dollars, 150 million bucks. Well, the king says, you know, I'm kind of busy with Trixie over here. Um, here, why don't you take my signet ring? You write whatever law you need to write and solve this problem yourself. So Haman takes that signet ring. He goes home, and at home, he set up this demonic shrine. And he starts practicing sorcery and calls upon the name of evil gods and tries to raise up demonic spirits. And he uses these kind of these satanic dice known as Purim. And he asks the demons when is going to be the right time to strike the Jews. And according to the Purim, the time to strike was going to be in March. Well, it's April and March is 11 months away. But, you know, the vile demonic gods have spoken. That's what we're going to do. So he writes this law that in 11 months, every single Jew on the face of the earth is going to be killed. And because he is a government official, he builds in an incentive plan. Like nothing's changed in 2,500 years. And in this plan, he says, if you kill a Jew, you get their stuff. So if your next door neighbor is Jewish, you take them out. Their house now belongs to you. And for the record, Haman was planning on killing a lot of wealthy Jews. Well, when this goes out across the empire, the Bible tells us the people in the capital city fell into a state of confusion. And there's weeping and wailing where people are mourning this coming Holocaust. And the Bible paints us this picture of Haman up in the palace overlooking the city, wine goblet in hand, listening to the cries of the people, toasting to his success. Well, meanwhile, down on the street, Mordecai hears about this, and he tears his clothes, and he part- puts on, like, bags and he instead of clothes, and he puts on dirt and ashes, and, like, like this was an ancient way of showing mourning and distress. And some of the other officials saw Mordecai, like, you know, covered in dirt and ash and stuff, and they went and told Queen Esther, Esther, we saw Mordecai out in the street covered in dirt and stuff. And she says, well, here, take him some fresh clothes. So they bring the clothes to Mordecai, and Mordecai says, no, no, I don't want the clothes. Doesn't Esther know what's going on? Esther needs to go to the king and save us. And so they give the message back to Queen Esther, and she says, what do you mean go to the king? If anybody goes to the king and he hasn't called for them, that's an automatic death sentence. Yes, I'm a queen, one of them. But he's moved on to younger queens by now. He hasn't seen me in ages. I can't go to the king. He'll kill me. And Mordecai responds to her with a question. A dangerous question. The question he asks is this. Who is to say that you weren't put into the palace for a time such as this? Who is to say that you weren't born for a time 
such as this. Who is to say that all the events in your life have not come together for a time such as this? Well, when Esther receives that, she's cut to the heart. Now, put yourself in her shoes. Have you ever been to a brook or a creek and like thrown a twig or a leaf in it and watch it sort of bobble along the water? That's Esther's entire life. Never in her life has she been able to make a meaningful decision about her own life. It wasn't her decision to become an orphan. It wasn't her decision to be captured by the scouts. It wasn't her decision to be made queen. She's never had the freedom to make any decisions about her life at all. She's always just been a victim of her circumstances. That's all she knows how to be. But when she receives that question, she makes a decision. If I'm going to die, I'm going to die attempting something great. And so she sends a message back to her cousin Mordecai and says, Mordecai, have all our people fast and pray for three days, and I will do the same. And then I will approach the king. And three days later, to the shock of everyone in the king's court, Queen Esther walks in alone and unannounced. And they are shocked. And as the guards go to arrest her, the king waves them off and says, Esther, what is so serious that you would risk your life to come see me like this? And Esther says to him, if it pleases the king, and if I found favor in your sight, I only ask that you and Haman come to a party that I've planned in your honor. Well, the king's confused. You risked your life to invite me to a party? Well, I do like parties. All right, Esther. We'll see what you got up your sleeve. Well, later at this party, once again in classic Persian style, unlimited wine, women, and song, it's fantastic. But at the end of the party, the end of the evening, Xerxes turns to Esther and says, Esther, what is this really about? And she says, if it pleases the king, and if I found favor in your sight, I only ask that you and Haman come to another party tomorrow night, and then I'll tell you. Well, the king's like, oh, that woman's a tease. Okay, tomorrow night, and then you'll tell me. All right. Well, Haman walks out of this party feeling like a million bucks. His star has now risen so high, he's been put right in the family affairs of the king himself. And Haman throws an after party. And he brings all the wealthy people in the palace, all the high palace officials over to his house, you know, for this after party because Haman is the stuff. And Haman's bragging at this party about how rich he is and how powerful he is and how influential he is and how he is the man. But as the wine continues to flow, Haman's spirit starts to drop. And he confesses, but all this wealth and influence means nothing as long as that idiot Mordecai is still allowed to live. And his wife says, well, I know we're supposed to kill all the Jews in March, but why can't you just kill Mordecai tomorrow? Like, we got a bunch of slaves around here. Have them build some gallows, big ones, 75 feet tall. We'll get them hung tomorrow. Now, the Bible says gallows. 
in your English translation. But that's because we don't have a word in English for what they're building. And gallows gives you a little bit of a wrong impression. When I say the word gallows, we think of like the Old West, you know, and someone dangling at the end of the rope like an ornament from a Christmas tree. That's not how Persian gallows worked. Persian gallows, you weren't hung like an ornament from a tree. You were hung like meat from a hook. There's no rope in Persian gallows. What they would do is take this really long spear and very, very, very slowly impale you with it. They don't want to hit any major arteries. They don't want to hit any major veins. And once they've got you impaled in it, they would lift it up high, stick it into the ground, and it would take you hours before you would die screaming and crying in pain. That is what Haman is building for Mordecai. Well, meanwhile, that night, King Xerxes, Xerxes can't sleep. He's tossing and turning in bed. And like, I don't know what's keeping up. Maybe you know this. You know, what does Esther have up her sleeve? But he can't sleep. And he's tried counting provinces. He's tried counting armies. You know, it isn't working. And he's thinking, okay, Xerxes, think, 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 think. How did I go to sleep as a kid? How did I go to sleep as a kid? <gasps> History class. History class. Boys, come out and start reading some history to me. And so his servants come out and they start reading some history books to him. You know, and in the fourth year of your reign, blah, 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 blah. And they get to that point with that assassination plot with Big Thana and Teresh. And Xerxes says, yeah, yeah, we had to hang those guys real good. Um, now that you know what hanging means, uh, uh, what did we ever do for that Mordecai guy who saved my life? And his servants say, nothing. And the king says, nothing. Here in Persia, if you save the life of a stray dog, we might do nothing for you. Is that what you're saying I am to you? No, 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 king, 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 no, 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 no. You're the greatest man who's ever walked on the face of the earth. Saving your life by definition is the most heroic of all deeds. Yeah, yeah, we should do something really big. And Xerxes says, yes, we should do something really big, but what? What's an appropriate way to reward a man who saved my very, very, very valuable life? And they can't quite figure anything out. Meanwhile, the sun has now risen. And Haman is on his way to get permission to kill Mordecai. And Haman's coming into the palace, and he's got a skip in his step. And he's coming in, oh, king! And king sees him and says, oh, Haman, thank the vile pagan gods you're here. Haman, you always have the good ideas. And Haman's thinking, I know. Haman, how do I show that a man has truly made me happy? Well, and Haman's thinking, who's the man? King, this is what you should do. You should take your own royal robes and place them on his shoulders. And then place him on your own royal stallion. And then have the greatest official in the land parade him through the streets, saying this is how the king rewards those who please him. Well, Xerxes is impressed. Yes, yes. Oh, I knew I could count on you, Haman. I want you to do exactly what you said, exactly the way you said it, for Mordecai the Jew. And Haman's like, what? Oh, and who's the greatest servant in the whole land? You! I want you to lead him through the streets. 
Well, Haman is shocked. And I mean, he does what he's told and starts leading Mordecai through the streets. And all the officials, all the who's who in the capital city who were at the after party the previous night, hearing Haman brag on how he's going to kill this man, instead see this. Well, that plan went sideways. Haman is humiliated. And at the end of the day, he goes home and he just slumps down. And his wife says, yeah, you know what? On second thought, maybe the whole murdering all the Jews might have been a bad idea. And he says, I don't know about that. But at least, at least I have this banquet with the king and queen tonight. So that night at this banquet, unlimited wine, women in song. And at the end of the party, Xerxes turns to Esther and says, Esther, so what's this really been all about? And Esther says, if it pleases the king, and if I found favor in his sight, I only ask that my life be spared. And Xerxes says, what are you talking about? And Esther says, there's a murder plot against me and my people. And if it was only about my life, that would be so too trivial for me to bother you. But it's not just me. It's my whole family and my whole people are to be killed, annihilated, and destroyed. And the Bible actually gives all three of those words, killed, annihilated, and destroyed. Well, Xerxes furious. Who would dare do such a thing to my queen? Haman is shocked. Who would dare do something for the queen? And the queen says, Haman. And Haman's like, what? Me? No, 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 no. I was just going to kill the Jews. You're not saying that you're Jewish, are you? <laughs> you're not saying that you're Jewish, are you? Queen Esther's Jewish? Oh, no. Oh, no. Well, Xerxes loses it. Oh, stomps out of the room. Haman realizes that his life hangs by a thread. And so he goes over to Queen Esther. She's lying on her couch, and he just flops down on her. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Please save me, please. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Xerxes walks back into the room and sees Haman lying on top of his wife. If he wasn't mad before, he's really mad now. And he says, what are you going to do? You're going to assault my wife right in front of my own eyes? And right at that moment, off in the corner, there's a little cough. <clears throat> And a servant says, um, King, uh, Haman just built some gallows, 75 feet tall, to kill the man, Mordecai, who saved your life. Well, for the first time, Xerxes knew exactly what to do. Now, I don't know if you noticed in this story of Esther that there's a turning point in the story. There's a hinge on which everything rests. And that turning point was Mordecai's dangerous question. Who is to say that you weren't born for a time such as this? Well, this morning, I'm asking you that same question. Who is to say that you weren't born for a time such as this? Who is to say that all of the events in your life have not come together for a reason? Who is to say that the fact that you're here and watching online this very day is not an accident, but you're here for a reason? 
You see, we live in the world that, that kind of teaches us that life is an accident. Your life is an accident. All life is an accident. Your life has no purpose because you weren't created on purpose. Your life has no meaning because nobody meant anything by your creation. But what if the world around us is wrong? What if your life does have a purpose because you were created on purpose for a purpose? What if your life does have meaning because there is a creator of life who meant something by it? Our world without meaning and without hope, we screw up our, our very own identity. And we don't even know who we are anymore. And now we try to base our identity on our feelings. And if I feel like a failure, I am a failure. If I feel depressed, I am depressed. If I feel like a nobody, I am a nobody. If I feel like a man, I am a man. If I feel like a woman, I am a woman. If I feel like neither, I'm neither. If I feel like I'm a dog, I'm a dog. I'm a feel like my cat, I'm a cat. We base everything on our feelings. Now, I don't know about you, but me, throughout the day, my feelings are like this. And if you're a woman, just kidding, just kidding. Please don't murder me. Maybe we shouldn't be basing our identity on our feelings. Maybe we should base our identity on who our creator says that we are. Well, what does our creator say about you? What does the very being who created you say who you are? Well, this is what God says. He says this. You are God's masterpiece, created anew in Christ, destined to do great things. Now, let me break that down for you. You are God's masterpiece. Now, some of you may have heard that the Bible was written before the English language even existed. And so it was written actually in ancient Greek. And the word that we're translating as masterpiece is a Greek word, poema from which we get the English word poem. You can kind of hear it, poema, poem, poema, poem. But the Greek word poema has a much bigger definition than poem. I mean, it could be a poem or a sonnet or a song, even a sculpture, even a great work of architecture could be poema. Poema is anything that a master craftsman would be proud of. That is who God says you are. You are something, you are someone that he's proud of. Now you might say, hey, Pastor John, you don't know me. You don't know what I've been through. You don't know my past. You don't know my failings. You don't know what I'm screwing up at right now. I'm sure God is not proud of me. I'm sure God is ashamed of me. And when you say that, you misunderstand God's heart so much. You see, the Bible says that God is the potter and you are the clay. And he has you on the potter's wheel right now. And yeah, God sees the mistakes. God sees the flaws. God sees the wounds. God sees our regrets. God sees our shame. God sees our addiction. God sees our bondage. 
But what God says is this. Just wait till I'm finished. Just wait till I'm finished. Because God has promised to make a masterpiece out of you. You are God's masterpiece. Created anew in Christ. Destined to do great things. Let's look at the end there. Destined to do great things. Now what's great in the eyes of our world is not necessarily what's great in the eyes of God. So God's not promising to make you a movie star. I had a conversation with a friend of mine, Dr. Earl Covert. And Dr. Earl says, John, if all the doctors in Canada disappear just like that and were not replaced, over the next year, thousands of people would die. He says, but if all the garbage men in Canada disappear just like that, over the next year, hundreds of thousands of people would die. You see, sanitation has saved far more lives than medicine ever will. What's great in the eyes of God is not necessarily what's great in the eyes of the world. What does greatness look like? We just have to look at Jesus' own life and example he set. This is what greatness looks like. Where there was darkness, he brought light. Where there was brokenness, he brought healing. Where there was loneliness, he brought friendship. Where there was rejection, he brought acceptance. Where there was confusion, he brought understanding. Where there was conflict, he brought peace. That is what greatness is. A life that matters, a life that makes a difference. You want to know what a heroic life is? That's the heroic life. And that's the life that you are destined for. You were created for. To live that life. Well, how do you make that happen in your life? What's well, found right in the middle of that verse. You are God's masterpiece, created anew in Christ. Well, what does that mean, created anew in Christ? Now, maybe this is the first time you've ever been to church, in which you came on a good Sunday. So I'm going to explain it to you. You see, when God created the world and when he created the human race, like the Bible literally tells us why humans exist. Why did God create our species? Well, he created our species for friendship. Friendship with God, friendship with each other, and friendship with creation. That's why our species was created. Chapter 3 in the Bible, we screw it all up. And we replace friendship with conflict. Conflict with God, conflict with each other, and conflict with creation. And if you've got eyes to see, just look at the world around you, and this is exactly what you'll see. But God did not abandon us to our fate. He could have. But he so loved the world that he sent his own son to reconcile all things to himself. And Jesus came to live that life, to demonstrate that life of how we should live, of where there is darkness, we can bring light. Of where there's brokenness, we can bring healing. Where there's confusion, we can bring understanding. Where there's loneliness, we can bring friendship. And he died on that cross to make that happen. Now, how does that work? Well, you see, God is a God of justice. 
And justice says that where there's a crime, there has to be a punishment because God is a good God. He's a holy God. Those kinds of things matter to him. Now you might say, yeah, John, I don't know if I need that. Like, I'm a pretty good person. If you look at my life and you look at my good deeds and my dad bad deeds, my good deeds way outweigh my bad deeds. And I believe you. I totally believe you. But you know, it doesn't work in that way in Canada, right? You can't drive 130 clicks an hour through a school zone and then say to the officer, yeah, but look at my good deeds. No, you break the law, you become a lawbreaker. And in the Canadian Criminal Code has like 800 laws in it. You can't stand before the judge and say, judge, I kept 799 of the laws. No, you break the law one time, you become a lawbreaker. And even that one law, you can keep it 99 days at 100. That doesn't matter. You break the law one time, you're a lawbreaker. Seriously, judge, 99 days out of 100, I don't murder anybody. Doesn't matter. That doesn't, that's the way it works in Canada. And every other country on the planet throughout time. Why would we think God would work any differently? We've all screwed up in our lives. We've all messed up. Yeah, yeah, there's some people who say, yeah, I haven't done anything wrong in my whole life. Okay, we got a word for those people. We call them psychos. <laughs> They're not better than everybody else. They're morons. Well, what God did is the punishment that you and I deserved. Jesus voluntarily paid for it. Every hammer in those nails was meant for you and me but he took it instead that our punishment our sins our shame our mistakes our addictions could be nailed to that tree and not nailed to me and three days later Jesus rose again from the dead we serve a God who is alive and not dead and one who is no longer nailed to a tree, but one who can live inside of us and walk with us and empower us to live that life I've talked about, that where there is darkness, you will bring light. Where there's brokenness, you will bring healing. Where there's confusion, you will bring understanding. Where there's conflict, you will bring peace. He rose again so you can rise again. See, every single one of us, we've been walking down our own road. I'm the captain of my fate. I'm the master of my destiny. I've been living my life the way I want to, and it's ended right here. What we're talking about is making a U-turn and following Jesus. Even when it leaves places that are scary, even when it leaves places you don't understand, we're talking about putting our life in his hands. Everything we are, our hopes, our dreams, our identity, our addictions, our passions, our shame, we're putting him in his hands and asking him to make us someone new. You might say, well, what if Jesus leads in directions I don't understand? What if Jesus says things that I don't agree with? Well, let me tell you something. Jesus is perfect in every single way. You and I are perfect in exactly zero ways. Oh, I guarantee there's going to be disagreements. But because he's perfect in every way and we're perfect in no ways, when we disagree, he's the one who's right. And that's why it takes this act of trust that, Lord, I don't understand what you're saying, 
I don't understand where you're leading, but I'm putting my trust in you. And when we do that, you become made anew in Christ. You become a new person, a new creation. You achieve a new identity. Now, if you want that to happen in your life right now, I'm going to lead you through a prayer that will change your destiny. And this prayer, we're not casting a spell. We're talking to a God who's right here right now. And all we're going to say to him is, God, I'm done with living my life my way. I want to follow you instead. Even when it's scary, even when I don't understand, I'm putting my trust in you. So if I could have everybody here bow your head right now. And I want you to repeat after me out loud. Dear God, I know I've messed up. I've done things I'm not proud of. I've failed to do things I should have. And I'm sorry. I want to follow you. Even when it's scary. Even when I don't understand. I put my trust in you. Lord, forgive me. Lord, heal me. Lord, free me. Lord, send me. Amen. Now, I want you to keep every head still bowed and every eye still closed. I don't want to embarrass anybody or call anybody out. But if you said that prayer for the very first time, could you look up at me and make eye contact and give me a thumbs up? Yes, thank you. Thank you. Amen. You know what the Bible says? For those of you who made that decision for the very first time, there's a party up in heaven much bigger than the one that Xerxes held. Much, much bigger. And that the angels themselves are celebrating that you have come home. Let's give an applause for people who've done that. Now, for those of you who've made that decision to follow Jesus, even though when it's scary, even when you don't understand, the first thing Jesus did in his ministry, the first thing he did was get baptized. And right now we've got this tank and you can take that very first step of obedience, that very first step of trusting him and get in this water. We've got, I'm going to be off to the side here. We've got towels. We've got t-shirts. We've got swim trunks, small, medium, large, double XL, triple XL, quad XL. We've got everything for you. And when you get baptized, let me tell you what this is. This is a symbolic gesture that going under the water represents dying to your old way of life, dying to your shame, dying to your past, dying to your addictions, dying to your brokenness, dying to your old identity. Coming up out of that water is rising up as a new creation, a new person, a new follower of Jesus with a new identity and a new destiny. That's what this represents. So I'm going to be off to the side there. If you've never done this before, this is your chance. If you're ready to start following Jesus, this is the first step. Thank you for tuning in today, and thank you for continuing to partner with us and for giving so generously to this ministry. If you would like to find out more about how you can partner with us, visit our website at www.wherepeoplematter.church and click the giving link. 
And don't forget to subscribe and share this with your friends. See you next time.